What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere. Visit highland.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations. Limited time only. Plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Russellnomics Radio. I am your host, Chris Harrington. Joining you here today, May 18th, 2016. Excited to be with you. It's time, of course, for us to touch base. Uh, I know... WrestleNomics Radio at one point in its life was called Indeed Wrestling Weekly, and uh, we did speak about things besides wrestling, and we were hardly weekly. But uh, in that same vein, I am back once again for my periodic updates. We had a Q1 results call not too long ago from WWE, where we had an opportunity to look at some of the impact of Q1 for 2016. Of course, this was not nearly as exciting, probably, as the post-WrestleMania numbers that were released that essentially let the cat out of the bag of exactly where WWE was going to come in, in terms of subscribers as of March 31st, 2016. So there wasn't a lot of surprises left to spring on us at that point. But still, it was an interesting quarter just to see uh, some of the strategic changes that the company made in how they presented the information some of the Q&A, of course, is always the most interesting part of these calls where a couple investors will finally call out some of the more intriguing aspects of the storyline that WWE is pitching and then try to poke some holes in it. And then we getting some additional insight into where WWE thinks it was going to go for the remainder of the year, for the remainder of the quarter, for Q2, where it's going to end, and getting us some additional information about what their strategic priorities are going to be for the rest of the year. Q1 revenue was at $171.1 million, compared to last year's Q1 revenue of $176.2 million. That is, of course, a drop of about $5.1 million, 3%. But 
the difference there being WrestleMania was in Q1 of last year, WrestleMania was not in Q1 of this year. So that gives us a real apples to oranges comparison, and WWE provides a pro forma in their release of what they believe taking out the tangibles of WrestleMania was like on a like-to-like basis. I would always challenge some of those assumptions because, A, you're being asked to essentially take their word for it that some of the ramp up, some of the ramp down, some of the uh, timing differences that you're going to see being impacted are being correctly taken out. The biggest one of those being what happens with the WWE Network right before WrestleMania. And this is something that we've seen, uh, we saw it very heavily in 2014 where the WrestleMania WWE Network launched shortly before WrestleMania, of course, in February of 24th to 2014. But we also got a number at 331, and then we got a number at the WrestleMania date. We saw within a week, hundreds of thousands of people signed up. And this year was no different. We know that the number of paid subscribers as of uh, 331 of this year was approximately 1,357,000 paid subscribers with 112,000 free subscribers. But by the time WrestleMania rolled around, paid subscribers had grown to 1.454 million subscribers, so up almost 100,000. And free subscribers had grown to 370,000 subscribers, up from 112, so up by almost 250,000. So a total of almost 350,000 people who were essentially pushed into the WrestleMania uh, pool between 331 and WrestleMania being held on April 4th. So just in three, four days there, really, we're talking about. So pretty incredible numbers when you think about that. And so taking that into account and thinking about that ramp up, you're going to see a different performance for a time where WrestleMania is held before the end of the month and WrestleMania is held after the end of the month. You're going to see a difference when WrestleMania has a free component to it versus a non-free component. You're going to see a difference in terms of uh, the live gate and the venue merchandise and all these other things that are going on, some of which is pretty tangible and you can pull out pretty easily, and some of it which is probably a little bit of a halo effect that's a lot harder for us to measure. So interesting kind of the timing and the aspects and, and how that can play out all in all. But just to give us a view of what we found out about in this Q1 was talking through those revenue, through those profit numbers, as they always do. In terms of profitability side, on OBITA, uh, total OBITA for Q1 2016 was $27.6 million, compared to $21 million last year at the same quarter, which had the WrestleMania in it. Which is, you know, it says a lot about... The way that the bookkeeping is done, you know, we see that the corporate and other has jumped from 37.7 million last year to 41.3 million this year, so 4 million up. That's going to include a lot of tangible and my favorite word today, right? Tangible. A lot of, a lot of uh, metrics that they go into some discussion of. So legal expenses, for instance, have been up quite a bit in the last uh, four quarters here. But some of it is also going to be going against NXT, some of it's going to be going against Office and other kind of things that they're managing right now. Uh, from a profitability standpoint, WWE Studios lost 400000 both last year and this year. Uh, consumer products, which includes licensing, venue merchandise, WWE Shop, was actually up by about $2.6 million, up to $17.7 million compared to fifteen point one last year. Uh, live events was, of course, way down compared to last year, almost $11 million difference with it being 6.1 this year and 17.6 last year. Again, the effect of WrestleMania. While the network, uh, Obito, was way up 
at uh, network was 15.8 versus negative 1.5. So last year, if you remember, they're still acquiring subscribers, getting their grounding. They had not fully rolled out the global launch at that point. The UK had just come align, alive in January of 2015. And even for January 2015, I don't think it was even really reaping dividends until later than that. Germany wasn't aligned like it is now. Japan wasn't aligned. Um, Italy, I think, was one of the late starters. There's, there's, you know, uh, Austria, things like that. So there, there was a whole host of, of countries that were not yet available for the WWE Network or just getting into the WWE Network. Television, of course, being a huge driver for revenue growth overall for WWE at uh, 28.3 million this year compared to 25.9 million last year. So an increase of about 2.4 million and uh, home entertainment, you know, 2 million last year, one and a half million this year and digital media at a negative $100,000. So whenever WWE is talking so much about digital media, when talking about their social engagements, talking about their YouTube views, talking about all that stuff, it's important to recall it is right now, for the most part, a money-losing segment. Now, they might say that some of that money is being recouped in other ways, so people watch YouTube instead of having cable, and then they go out and they order the WWE Network, and that's a valid argument. But uh, there's still a lot of dots and arrows and spaces to connect on the board to make that complete argument fall through. So total OBITA, again, 27.6 compared to 21.0. So... Uh, Operating income before depreciation and amortization up in Q1. But really for me, what was more interesting about kind of the Q1 findings was a look at how they're reporting in terms of some of the changes they made. One of the biggest changes being, of course, that they really revolutionized, again, the way that they want to talk about their key performance indicators. If you've been following some of the things I posted over at SeekingAlpha.com, this next section might sound very familiar as I'm going to just recap a lot of the points I made in an article I called Understanding WWE Q1 Results. One of the biggest changes happening with WWE is that they are going away from having their key performance indicators, their KPIs, be released monthly and moving to a format where it's only released quarterly. I think this is a big change for investors because... The information that they have right now, especially on the trending on things like attendance, having that on a monthly basis gives you a pretty good insight into whether or not we're seeing a pickup in momentum and interest in WWE. Television ratings, as you know, are falling right now, so even when you want to measure that, you're really talking about how much better are you doing versus the overall drop rather than expecting even an increase. So uh, unless you're a close student of the game, you're someone who's out there reading a newsletter like... F4W Online, reading Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer Newsletter, reading PW Torch, whether you're going to other wrestling websites, whether you're following other uh, bloggers and writers, so you're you know you're you're tuned in to Keith Harris, you're tuned in to Brandon Howard, you're checking out David Bixenspan, you're following anybody who's got some useful information out there. You know, I think MLW Radio has been doing a, a pretty good job recently about uh, talking about WWE business, talking about the nature of the changing world we live in when it comes to multimedia entertainment, how it's streamed, how it's viewed, how it's consumed online, and the implications it has for television networks that are kind of the main uh, pocketbooks, <laughs> you know, the, the main funders for this kind of, of high-scale content. 
but uh, it's going to be a challenge for people that are don't really have access or aren't tuned into those things. And so it makes me a little nervous. Uh, you know, you have Berrios on his periodic investor presentations, but I always think of those as very sanitized, very repetitive, very uh, rehearsed type situations. And while it does have that Q&A aspect, which, have, as I mentioned, is the most interesting part of most of these conference calls, I do question oftentimes whether or not, you know, you're really getting all that much more information about how WWE is doing versus maybe WWE's strategic vision of how they'd like to be doing. So in WWE, every quarter, when you, at least you did have these periodic updates month to month to month from the key performance indicators, you could at least begin to get some viewpoints about what was you know being discussed in uh, each each month. But now things have dramatically changed. So in the past, we used to get the WWE Network number. We'd get a paid number, an average number, the total number of subs. That was only given to us on a quarterly basis, something that I always thought was a real disconnect to have a monthly document that only had quarterly data in it. Then we had pay-per-view buys that were still being updated. They were being pre uh, presented monthly, and they included both the domestic and the international buys. They were by event. They were by quarter. You could get a really good feel there for the split between um, how was the world changing now that we're in the WWE Network world, now that WWE wasn't selling their pay-per-views through a satellite operator and things of that nature. We had an idea about the home entertainment business. We saw what the average price was. We saw what significant titles were moving. We saw how many units were being shipped. Sometimes we'd even get a, a average price uh, uh, per, per disc and you could see, okay, they've been doing fire sales here. They've been changing their distribution agreement here and so forth and so on. The digital media numbers we would get, uh, it, you know, started off as social media followers. And originally there was actually a section called internet traffic and usage. And that later morphed into this free video on demand views. Uh, we would get live event attendance. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in today's show. But that would have North America, that have international, that would have the number of events. And they'd even be a breakout to say, oh, this was the impact from WrestleMania. You can see it here. It's real visual. It was real helpful. And then lastly, you had the consumer product section. And so we could see what the online merchandise sales were, how many orders were there or other information so that we'd get a feel for how active was WWE shop. And again, I saw that as a barometer for the interest in the overall product and their ability to convert users into people that were spending their money. Now, WWE, in their quarterly KPIs, this new version that's out there, you'll see that they start off in a completely different way. It starts off now, and it's all about the average U.S. primetime cable ratings. So yeah, you, you, you look at it, and what you'll see... I'm just pulling it up here in front of me. The first graph shows you raw quarter over quarter. Then it shows you SmackDown quarter over quarter. Then it shows you uh, USA Network quarter over quarter. And then it shows you top 25 cable networks quarter over quarter. And there's this whole thing about we're showing you the coverage rating. We're showing you the national rating. And what you see there is that raw is down 12% their ratings. SmackDown with move to a stronger network. It moved from sci-fi to the USA Network. It dropped. It got a you know better time slot, better better um uh, 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 network for sure, uh, and it dropped five percent. You see, USA as a whole is down nine percent, and you see that top table top twenty five cable networks is down seven percent. And of course, the whole picture here is set up to show you. Look at this dwarf 
look how much Raw dwarfs all these other shows in their ratings. Raw is averaging a 2.21 if you're looking at the national rating or 2.74 if you're looking at the coverage rating. SmackDown is averaging a 1.9 on the coverage, 1.53 on the national, whereas USA Network is down to a 1.33 at the high end and a 0.74 is the, the total top 25 cable network. So it's supposed to put in perspective to say, look, Raw's down, but not as bad as everybody else. It's a little bit of a straw man argument because you're not looking at some of the other things that we might actually call out as competition to WWE. We're not looking at, say, UFC ratings. We're not looking at live events ratings. We're not looking at event-driven programming ratings. We're not looking at popular show ratings. You know, we're not looking at Walking Dead ratings here. We're not looking at things like Dancing with the Stars or even football games or basketball games or baseball games or NHL games. And so there, there's a there's a degree of... Uh, selectivity in terms of what they're trying to compare but overall they're definitely true in to say that raw is a popular show in terms of the eyeballs it garners on television that said the advertising dollars they garner are not anywhere near where other shows that garner far less ratings are getting today uh the next page on this is the media consumption wwe avod consumption avod means ad supported video on demand and it just basically shows how many global hours are being viewed and global views. Um, again, it's one of these metrics to say, look, a lot of people are watching us. A lot of people online are, are watching our videos. And look how important we are. Uh, social media followers, a number that's almost guaranteed to always go up, uh, is up to 629 million followers with 415 on face, million on Facebook, 128 on Twitter, and 86 on, quote, other platforms, which includes, you know... Uh, Instagram and Tumblr and other things like that. And then they even have this social media engagement where they said there's 276 million social media engagements in Q1 of 2016. Uh, they have a page on the WWE Network ending subscribers where, of course, they try to call out the total number of subscribers for WrestleMania being up by so much. Luckily, they do at least make it clear that of the 1.824 million people, 370,000 of them didn't pay a penny to watch WrestleMania this year. So that $60, $70 value product, $0. And hopefully you'll get them for a $10 subscription. And then hopefully you'll get them for five more months at that $10 subscription. Um, WWE Network average subscribers, free and paid, um, a, a whole bunch of quarter over quarter data. And then the average total domestic subscribers, breaking that all out. And uh, if you ever want to see this, you can go to corporate.wwe.com. Just find the area that says Key Performance Indicators. Click there, and you'll see this there. If you don't see it there, go to the Investors page, and then go down to, I think it's called Financial Data or Financial Information. You'll always find it there. Uh, the next page after that is WWE Network Order-Based Subscriber Growth. This has both the churn and the additions number. I'm glad that they added this to the KPIs. This was something that, as I would talk to people, I'd say, this is a really interesting graph they have. And they say, where'd you get that? I'm like, oh, it was in the presentation that they give out each quarter. And so putting into the KPIs, much better place for it, much better to just kind of have our ability for us to track this quarter over quarter. I do think it's enormously uh, amazing to me that we still had 358,000 people churn out in Q1 of 2016, um, only down from the 405,000 people that churned out in Q4 and 376 in Q3. So it's still in the hundreds, almost half a mil, half a billion, as Vince would joke, 
um, of churn that we're seeing the quarters. A little bit under that, but you get the idea. We see on the next page after that, you see the live event attendance. So those breakouts, much like I said before, that one seems to be okay, at least be intact. And then a whole bunch of footnotes. So if you're paying close attention, you'll notice that some of the metrics, some of the areas that in the past we were getting reporting on, we're no longer getting reporting on. So if you think about it, we lost, for instance, um, we lost the pay-per-view number. We lost the WWE shop number. We lost the home entertainment number. We um, only sort of get numbers on venue merchandise and digital media in the sense that they don't report any revenue for either of those segments. But venue merchandise in some way is going to be connected to, uh, in my mind, to the attendance. It would also have been connected to the WWE shop numbers a little bit. Uh, and the same with uh, digital media, all the social engagements, you'd expect there to be more digital media revenue, not necessarily profitable revenue, but revenue nonetheless. Uh, we are getting better insight into the television ratings, something that I always felt that in the past they were really downplaying and kind of underplaying, almost to their detriment of all those years that they were having these great television ratings, and they didn't really put those in those KPIs front and center. And now that it's falling through the floor, that's when they added in. It's kind of ironic in a sense. But uh, just what kind of got me was that they stopped producing you know, reporting on pay-per-view, on the WWE shop, on home entertainment, that's $61 million of annual revenue. You know, that's that's almost uh, 10% of their total revenue. And that's $18 million of OBITA. You know, they, they did about $62 million on OBITA last year for 2015. And so when you take out $18 million from that piece, that's huge. Now, of course, corporate and others, this giant negative number, and all these other, like television, was a $97 million OBITA number. So it's not like they took that completely out. But I, I still feel like, you know, WWE Shop, why would we expect to not care about what's happening with the web portal? The only thing I can come up with is that... In the UK, I believe they're now using kind of an Amazon fulfillment, so you don't directly have access to some of those uh, data in the same sense as you might have previously. But still, I think that's a huge metric and, and kind of the future of kind of the ability to tie WWE Network with selling things on e-commerce, the ability to track that month over month, or now it's only even quarter over quarter. And the ability for us to see them monetizing and figuring out better merchandising strategies and what's hot, what's working. I, I just, I don't get it. It seems very short-sighted to me. I can get that they want to get away from home video because it's a, a shrinking area, even though it's a very profitable area. You know, it had about a 34% margin, uh, which is better than, uh, say, the shop business. Um, was probably better than what the network business is. probably even better than what the live events business is in terms of their sh percentage uh, it's definitely better than the digital media business in terms of, of just raw percentage on OBITA. But it it just frustrates me sometimes that WWE is making these moves. And, I, you know, I, I do hope that people call them out a little bit about what's going on and, and why did they make that move and maybe even hold them a little bit more accountable to if they're going to keep moving metrics around. What is it they're trying to hide? What is it they're afraid to discuss? Uh, because I think it's it's a very reasonable thing to kind of ask them about. Now, what's going to be the real litmus test for me about how effective this free WrestleMania campaign was, was not what these Q1 numbers are, but rather what the Q2, and especially what those Q3 numbers are. In the past, we've seen a huge malaise for Q3 and Q4 when it comes to acquiring new WWE Network subscriptions. This is a very chunky model right now. 
where you acquire a lot of people at a certain point of the year, and then you just kind of fight to retain them for the rest of the year. And these little dribs and drabs that they were getting throughout the year in some way was being completely obfuscated by the fact that they were launching the WWE Network in different markets around the world. Well, we're pretty much out of markets to launch it in. The only one left is going to be China, and there's a host of issues about going into China. And a little bit after this, I'm going to talk more about international markets, and uh, we'll, we'll touch on some of my thoughts at that point there. But I think it's a real challenge for them right now to really hide behind anything except for the fact that the WWE Network is pretty much at this state a fully uh, uh, dispersed, uh, available substance that a commodity that can be purchased in almost anywhere in the world. The pricing is set. Uh, It's a little bit higher, of course, in a handful of markets, specifically in the UK and Ireland. Its distribution is set. It's a little different in Canada or in the Middle East or I think it's in the Philippines where they're using more cable operator as a premium linear channel. But WWE doesn't really have a lot more to rely on in terms of non-organic growth, right? They're out there in these marketplaces. They've got their television distribution deals they've been bragging about. They've got this, uh, you know, incredible social media environment where they've got billions of hours of viewed of video and they have millions hundreds of millions of followers and they have all these ways you can consume and and watch this content and that's part of what became the most interesting narrative and discussion during the q1 call which laura martin god bless her you know i've i've maligned her on the show before and uh, she really took it to him by basically saying, look, some of the numbers you're producing here suggest that almost 80% of our uh, consumption of the social video, the social media and the video stuff is coming from international. It's non-domestic. But when we look at the WWE Network, it's skewed almost three quarters domestic, one quarter international. So either... There's a disconnect here where we should be expecting international to take off or there's not a correlation between the social media and WWE Network, which is, you know, the actual monetization of the process and really, you know, holding their feet to the fire to say, why is this so great? And WWE basically said, well, we think it's a casual correlation. We think it's a long-term thing. We think it's part of kind of reinforcing the infrastructure and the the ecosystem that we've created for watching WWE content in different lengths and and pieces. So it can go from a long-form three-hour show and the full-priced pay-per-view, which, you know, essentially you're paying for on the WWE Network, all the way down to the bite-sized little Facebook video. So it's... A concept it's a pitch it's certainly um you know the narrative that george barrios is going to give out each and every time it's pretty funny when vince just said i'll explain it to you later laura uh in in kind of a half joking way uh but that's one thing i do love is that laura always asks for vince to to respond directly on these calls and uh, almost nobody else actually has the balls to call him out directly and ask for him to answer things especially about social media and and you know kind of uh 21st century concepts which i always i always get a kick out of but what exactly this means in the long run that's a huge question i think it's a great question to ask i mean even the point was made well if wrestlemania is a 60 dollar value 
Normally, you're only getting, uh, you know, $10 a month. That means you have to get these people for six months. Are you getting them? Are you going to show us metrics to prove you're getting them? Because you took a huge gamble this year to show us that you're going to give away this product, not for $10, but for $0. And it's kind of striking to me that, you know, you're out of marketplaces to kind of shield your growth with. And so we're going to find out pretty soon about how many people did you retain through the end of Q2. I think they were talking about somewhere in the the range of maybe one and a half million people, which would be a, a decent place to be. But what I don't understand is what is the upside after that? How much further higher can you go? Or are we finally at that point when you say, you know what, this is what steady state is. If you're only getting, you know, a few million people watching your show and you're able to get one and a half million of them to pay or let's say a million of them to pay regularly, that's a pretty good conversion rate in terms of getting us a, a, a dedicated subscription from them. But it doesn't say a lot about why you can think you can get to three to four million just because you can get a lot of people who will, you know, like a post on Twitter or even uh, retweet a Bella's thing uh, when they post on Instagram. So I, I do think that there, you know, I've said it before, I have this large disconnect between what the what they're growing and where the money is. And you'll hear someone like Berrios give the example, well, cable television was like that in the 80s. Everybody thought it was this wasteland. Now, it, you know, for a period there, it's producing the best television that's out there, you know, kind of the Breaking Bad era. And uh, the the point being that those people became our, our breadwinners. Those people, that, that segment that, you know, people just thought of as exposure that became our biggest segment in the year 2016 in terms of generating revenue. Now, I have my own issues about that, which is in the past, they used to break up international and domestic television rights, and they no longer do that in their data ever since I think it was about 2015 that they stopped giving us that kind of insight on what is a domestic TV right, what is an international TV right, considering it's their very largest segment, and we're seeing such enormous growth right now coming from um, these international television deals. When you start looking at the the line-by-line-by-line sales by region in terms of where money's coming from, you look at someone like the UK, where there's just been this enormous explosion in 2015. Um, Let me just see if I can pull up the number here. Uh, The UK in 2015... And this is at the end of one of my articles that I wrote for Seeking Alpha. This is the end of my other article about the international marketplace, where basically I point out that the UK has gone from a $34 million market in 2010 to a $76 million market in 2015. How much bigger is that $76 million? Well, in 2014, so just one year prior, it was only a $40.5 million market. So it went from 40.5 to 76.6 million dollars. That 36 million dollar increase, most of that is coming from the fact that WWE was able to get a huge deal from B Sky B, plus WWE was able to take in, you know, um, probably a hundred thousand uh, international subscribers to the WWE Network in January of 2015. If you multiply that by their $15 value, again, they're not paying $9.99 USD. They're paying £9.99. Pounds. And uh, $15 times that whole amount, you're, you're looking at somewhere in the range of, you know, what is that, $18 million over the course of the year. And they were spending some on pay-per-view previously. So that's not all incremental revenue. 
But I, I believe a lot of it is a uh, uh, probably a net, net, net increase for WWE. Plus, they ran that NXT tour in the UK, and they've been jacking up their prices all, all that they can everywhere. So WWE as a whole is seeing some success in a, a country like the UK, but a huge part of that $36 million year-over-year increase in the UK comes from their TV rights. And I really feel like it would be more... Uh, honest if they were able to break out their TV rights numbers into a domestic and an international number so that we had better granularity, as as Mr. Berrios would love to say, uh, that we can understand the ecosystem, Berrios buzzword, uh, better so that we could really understand how much of this growth is coming from live events, how much of this growth is coming from uh, television rights, how much of it is coming from increased merchandising, increased uh, merchandise sales, increased live event uh, uh, capitalization and attendance and tickets and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm just, you know, as always, I, I always want more, give me more and more and more and more, but especially more detail about what's happening with WWE. One of the things I wrote my second article about, which was published, uh, this week at Seeking Alpha was about WWE's 2016 goals and specifically, uh, one of their third the third goal so they they listed at their shareholder presentation on in april 2016 four goals number one grow wwe network and specifically in global subscribers which i think is really interesting because it speaks once again to the fact that the domestic market is probably getting tapped out in terms of their ability to continue to convert short of a mega awareness mega um merchandising campaign you know where you, you order wwe network and you get this free blank um you know uh, actual merch i i can't see very much more in terms of domestic growth right now especially through the end of 2016 uh they want to number two increase engagement across digital and social media it's one of those nice buzzwords and nice things that they can show uh from the executive officer's standpoint that they can be graded on and show their ability and they can dominate whether or not that will equal revenue down the line I've said my piece. Three was increased revenue from international markets, which is an important point about they are choosing some strategic markets internationally that they believe are high growth opportunities. And I'll list out both what those emerging markets are and what some of the other graphs and, and data points that they've mentioned in the past. And then lastly is innovate across all businesses. When they ask about innovation, they're going to say, well, that's going to come from both our content innovation, but moreover, it's going to come from technology innovation. It's going to be, they hired someone new for data analytics. Uh, they hired, uh, you know, more people to do strategy. They're they're trying to really change the way that the WWE Network is able to capitalize all that big data and turn that into recommendations, turn that into uh, uh, new ideas. And then, of course, there's those kind of pie in the sky things. They have VR helmets. Uh, they have uh, the new mobile platforming. Uh, where you can order merchandise from the comfort of your seat at the live event and then pick it up on the way out, things like that. So th they're looking at other ideas. Um, a while ago, let's talk about international markets. So WWE listed out their international markets in terms of uh, WWE fan universe and the affinity in those households. And so they, they talked about where are the most broadband households that have, um, you know, the ability to get the WWE network and then have a lot of, of people that are going to be either lapsed casual or passionate fans. And what was interesting to me is that you have the U S at 50.9 million broadband homes that 
are supposedly these WWE fan homes. Then you have Japan is number two at 17 and a half, and then India 17.2, Germany at 14 million, Mexico at 10 and a half, France at 10 million, UK at little under 10 million, Canada at six and a half million, and Australia at three million. But when you looked at back in, in um, February of 2015, when WWE actually said, here's our top 10 markets for the WWE Network as of February 2015. And keep in mind, this was right after the UK came online. Number one was, of course, the US. Number two was the UK, already shooting to number two. Three was Australia. So if you remember my broadband list homes, that was the smallest on that list. And yet it was already number three. Number four was Canada, which of course had a hybrid model and distribution with the the, can, the channel through Rogers, then later other telecoms that Rogers made deals with. And then also you could get access to some of the streaming content through the website if you used your login. Um, number five was Chile, you know, total left field. Six was New Zealand. Uh, unclear whether that Australian number included New Zealand originally. Number seven was Ukraine. Again, left field. Eight is Mexico. Well, that was supposed to be a huge one, right? It's behind Chile and New Zealand and the Ukraine. Number nine was Brazil. We'll get back to Brazil. Ten was France. Huge country, huge opportunity. Tenth on the list here. At this time, Germany was not uh, an official WWE Network uh, uh, available country, so Germany is not going to be on this list. Neither is a country like Italy, but um, and neither would be Japan because Japan was not available at that time either. But it's worth noting that, you know, Despite uh, France and Mexico being so high, it was Canada and the U- and Australia that were doing so much higher in terms of actual uh, usage and subscriptions. But the second part of this is there was only, you know, what was it, 165,000 or something subscribers at the time that this came out. So when we're really breaking it all down, let's keep in mind that we're talking about the lion's share being in the UK. And then when we're getting down to seven, eight, nine, ten in terms of countries, you're just talking about a few thousand subscribers. You know, they love to tout that there's been subscribers in X number of hundreds of countries. Um, but the reality is those are, you know, negligible amounts when it really gets down. Uh, when people asked, you know, Brad Safalo at, at PAA, Please Act Accordingly Research, asked George Berrios, Okay, well, you launched India in November of 2015. Can you tell me how it's going? And they basically said, oh, well, you know, the UK is a terrific market. That's our our second biggest market. It's our biggest international market. We do great in Canada. Um, You know, outside of the top 10, we have a nice mix of countries, which is code for no, there wasn't anything big that was happening in India. Of course, with India, you're not even getting live pay-per-views. Those are blacked out until uh, 24 hours after they air because when 10 sports put in their mega bid back to my whole point about how much are the international tv rights worth when 10 sports in india put in their mega bid uh wwe uh basically when they finally rolled out it in india agreed that they wouldn't show the live pay-per-views at that same time and as a concession i don't think it's till 2017 that they're going to be shown live so you have a whole year and a month that uh, the WWE Network is active in India at a 9.99 USD price, which is pretty high in a local market setting, but is not even available for uh, uh, you know full usage in a way. So it, it says a lot about the UK teaching us about the network price points. That at a $15 price point, you know we're seeing this huge adoption in the international marketplace, which kind of to me says 
if you want it, they will come. So when WWE made the strategic decision that, hey, we're going to be $9.99 everywhere, great marketing, $9.99, works great in the UK where it's £9.99. But on the flip side, doesn't that really say that maybe some of that conjoint analysis that you're doing and some of that heavy thinking you're doing, we were talking about it being $12.99 to $14.99 might have actually been a better move for WWE because we're seeing such price inelasticity for the people that want this thing and such recklessness in the marketplace to not adopt it if they're not interested in it, that to me, it just seems like WWE, you know, that was originally promising they could get a million domestic, which took them almost, you know, uh, uh, more than a year for sure to get close to, uh, that WWE just needs to, you know, it took them a, a year just to get a million people, period, let alone a million domestic. So I just think that WWE really again, go back to that price sensitivity. They're not talking necessarily about tiering. They, you know, kind of hint and hem and haw at it when they throw surveys out, but it's something they need to heavily, heavily consider uh, in lieu of getting three to 4 million subscribers. If you had the same number of subscribers that you have today, you would be 75% of the way to your goal of the revenue you would generate with 3 million subscribers rather than being only 50% to your goal. So it's pretty significant in terms of what this pricing change could have done for them. But at this point, they're showing no signs or interest in adopting any kind of a pricing flexibility or specific tiering options beyond just generically speaking about it as one of those things that, hey, if it's a good idea, we'll look into. WWE did talk about some emerging markets that they want to focus in on, and they specifically called out uh, what I'd consider three tiers of countries and a total of seven countries. So the first tier was India and China. So what you have there is markets where WWE has enormous populations, has uh, a, a rising middle class, like they like to say, has some opportunity with um, some local programming distribution or national programming distribution where they believe that they can make a difference. Um and at least in the Indian marketplace, they've gone as far as, you know, hiring some new stars in terms of sports stars that they're training to become wrestlers. And when they did the short tour of New Delhi, and I think it was January of 2016, they did even bring those two guys back to work the shows. So with India, we see this huge TV deal. We see some localization going on with ZTV and the Hindi program. They see some um, opportunity there. Uh, but China... Every time, it's just China's the future in terms of we're working on it, we're working on it, it takes a long time. They did recently hire a guy, I think his name is uh, Jay Lee, to be the new um, general manager for China, essentially, and really expand in the Shanghai office. Uh, a couple conferences ago, George Berrios talked a lot about how one of the state priorities seemed to be that they were going to invest more in media and... Uh, perhaps that would you know help them with their distribution and they were rethinking their model. So I'll be curious to see if they do make any progress on that China puzzle. Uh, there's been so many rumors recently about UFC you know putting itself up for sale and the possibility of some big Chinese conglomerate or big Chinese uh, venture capital uh, buying in or buying out and working there to try to expand. And I think that speaks a little bit to the challenge WWE would have, which is, you know, they historically are not big fans of a giving up any of themselves and B 
uh, you know, trying to go into these kind of marketplaces with anything except for their way or the highway type models. Now, I think they've rolled out the WWE network much faster than I ever thought they could. So in that sense, it's been an enormous success for them to knock down barriers and break through walls and, and do things in countries that I just did not think they could get done. But the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is, you know, it defies expectations and understanding in terms of, of how it's transformed itself. I know I've talked a lot in the past about Shane McMahon's company, You On Demand, and exactly what's happening there. I was looking more carefully at some of the documents that his company filed recently. And while Shane McMahon is no longer a, let's say, um, an officer for You On Demand, meaning that he's no longer serving as their chairman or the vice chairman, he is still serving on their board of directors. Uh, his, his employment with them ended in January 31st of 2016. But part of his deal, I believe, does say something about a non-compete when it comes to pay-per-view in the PRC. And so I wonder if that's some the sort of thing that kind of prohibits him from, you know, going back to the WWE in the fashion of working as a China expert, because it could be seen as a conflict of interest or a violation of his non-compete terms from his time at You On Demand. Not to say that WWE is chomping at the bit to get him back, but, you know, Vince and other people have been rather adamant in in their discussions, you know, releasing a statement to the New York Post, uh, mentioning on the call that, you know, he is not employed in an executive capacity only as a television character. And I think that's that's highly relevant in this scenario. The next tier of countries that they mention is uh, what I call Mexico and Brazil. That's kind of what I think of as a Latin America, South America kind of tier. So when we look at the revenue numbers on this, we'll see that they've really changed their touring behavior in Mexico since 2011, 2012, where A, Rey Mysterio kind of depleted his role with the company. B, they didn't really capitalize on that whole Sin Cara deal. C, they, I think, saw some disappointing attendance around 2011, 2012, which caused them to really restrict uh, how much they wanted to go to that marketplace. But going into 2016, we're seeing with Mexico maybe five shows planned, uh, a two-day and a three-day tour. But we don't see any big stars like, you know, they had Undertaker last year on the show uh, wrestling uh, the Wyatts. So a big difference there in terms of um, what they were doing with Mexico uh, where they've been with Mexico and where they might be in the future. Brazil was one of those countries that a long time ago I wrote an article for Bleacher Report where I looked at all the different places in the world that had opportunity for the WWE Network. And Brazil was a really interesting one because Brazil has uh, some degree of broadband connection. It has, you know, a, a rising economic fortunes. Of course, they're going to be hosting the Olympics this year. And it, it's seen kind of as their big breakout moment. They're dealing with all kinds of... Um, economic turmoil uh, c coming from the, the health crisis with Zika. They're dealing with political turmoil with their impeachment of the president. They're doing a lot of different things there. You might recall Brazil was where Chris Jericho ended up getting himself suspended for stomping on a flag uh, during the one time WWE went to Brazil last. Um, uh, sorry, Pat Patterson. And uh, WWE just definitely exactly what their plans are in that country. I remember reading articles a long time ago about, you know, how Spotify was highly successful in a place like the Nordics, uh, Spotify, the place where Garrett Meyer of international WWE came from, um, where 
places like Brazil were not doing well because there was kind of this pirate attitude in terms of not paying for streaming services. And so I was being told, no, there's not going to be high adoption of streaming services in, in South America and Latin America, uh, but specifically Brazil being called out as, as one of the biggest offenders there. And again, we're going to have a language barrier with the, the Portuguese, but at the same time, we you know, there, there's somewhat of a cultural fit. Uh, and it will be interesting to see if maybe there are some television partners or something that would want to get the WWE Network as an actual linear channel, perhaps. Uh, we've certainly seen UFC capitalize that marketplace and grow and, and do some wonderful things there. And it's not to say that, that there isn't a South American pro wrestling legacy as well. But uh, it's, it's very intriguing to me uh, what exactly they want to do with Brazil. And it's something that, in my opinion, kind of came out of the blue when I saw it in, in their investor presentation, in their latest investor presentation. And tomorrow, WWE, uh, George Berrios is going to be giving a talk about some of this emerging markets at the Needham conference. And so I'm hoping we can get some better details at that time about what exactly is some of his plans. The third tier of countries that were mentioned was Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. And Saudi Arabia and UAE, we've seen WWE going there. We've seen them going to Qatar in the past. We've seen them going to these Middle East places for sold shows where they've made some good money on it, for sure. Uh, in the past, one of their live events coordinators, the guy who ended up going to the Viking Stadium, he used to run a stadium in, I think it was the UAE, which explains, maybe it was Dubai. Now, now I'm all confused. But either way, that suddenly, as soon as he joined WWE, suddenly WWE started going there. So I, I think they see him as cash cows for sure. But the challenge will be, uh, is there, you know, just getting a lot of social media movement there? Is that going to be enough for them to really develop those markets? Turkey is brand new to me. I, I haven't heard them talk about Turkey before. They have been to Turkey and done a show there in the last uh, five years, 10 years here. But I think it's only one show, so it's not like they've been there a whole bunch of times, kind of like Russia, kind of like even China, where, yes, they've dipped their toe in the waters, but to say they've actually been there a lot would be very different. So I, I'm just very interested, you know, when they talk about high, medium, and, and low growth potential countries in the 2015 uh, investors presentation, so a year ago, they said high was the UK, India, Australia, UAE, and Mexico, Medium was Germany, France, and Canada, so very developed markets, markets that they go to a lot. Though, of course, UK, they go to even more than Canada. Um, and then low was Italy, South Korea, and Japan. So on that list there, you know, you don't see Brazil's, you don't see Turkey's, you don't see uh, some of these other players, even China, listed in terms of a growth potential number that they were giving out. Uh, I think a lot of that growth potential was, in fact, based on uh, television rights, really, and if you look at what was the bundle of deals that they did to, you know, for their big increase number, you'll see a lot of those high growth countries are the same as those high growth uh, TV rights deals, uh, though Thailand isn't on the list here. And that was one that really overbid, drove the price way up. I think it was like a sevenfold increase and then ended up in a lawsuit with them because they didn't pay their bills at CTH. So what I'm curious with is... A, is this India is the future narrative that Berrios has said so many times to us? Is that really going to pan out for them? And B, why is Japan so low? Now, when I think of Japan, I think of a place that has uh, a lot of the characteristics that seem would, would mesh well with WWE. Number one, you have the fact that it's a highly industrialized country with a high economic fortune. 
Number two, you have a cultural fit and a cultural history that ties with professional wrestling, of course, being all over that country. Three, you have a streaming service already launched there with New Japan World, and you have WWE coming in with their streaming service. Four, you have some enormous WWE performers who are Japanese stars. And so when you have Nakamura, when you have Asuka, when you have, uh, you know, Kenta uh, now... Uh, and and you have these other people that have been there and you know we see each year at the WWE Hall of Fame that they seem almost like they're trying to find a Japanese performer they can they can honor each year so they can get that media attention they did the beast from the east show uh even though it was airing at a crazy time in uh a, a for a normal pay-per-view slot it actually did quite well for live kind of consumption and which said a lot about the interest in this fan base both in the product and the offering at the time and the novelty of it, but also in, um, you know, that, that, that there was some translation going on where I think people really did want to see what would it be like at WWE in Japan. We see incredible high merchandise gates that they've been able to do. We see the incredible technology and the production values that they've always put forth in Japanese shows, you know, back to the pride era, or even with what they'll do with new Japan. So I, I just see this enormous cultural fit. And sometimes I, I scratch my head wondering, why aren't they doing more with Japan? Why don't they see more in Japan? And so I, I I question sometimes whether or not that there's more opportunity for them in that marketplace than maybe they're giving themselves. And I think they're overselling some places like India that really at this point can deliver a big TV rights number, which they already have, and a lot of clicks on articles. But a place like Japan or even Australia where there might be a lot more opportunity for an economic return on on your income uh, when you go to live touring or merchandising there. So that that's just some of my thoughts right now on where we are in the emerging markets data. Um, the last piece I wanted to touch on was just going back to what I was saying with the KPIs, which is every month in the KPIs, now every quarter in the KPIs, they give you what the quarterly attendance is, and then they break it out into kind of buckets where they say, this is it, what it was with WrestleMania, this is what it was without WrestleMania. And if you're any good at math, you can actually take those numbers and say, well, if it's you know 7,000 with WrestleMania and it's 6,000 without WrestleMania, and I did 70 shows in one bucket and 69 in the other bucket, uh, the difference there is, and da-da-da-da-da. And you can come up with a number that basically says, this is what WrestleMania's value was. Now, it's not an exact number, because there's rounding involved. Because when they say it's 7,000 people a show, it could really be as high as, say, 7,049 people in the show. Or it could be as low as, say, 6,950 people in the show. And both those numbers would round to 7,000 if that's what you're trying to do. So when you think about that, there's there's kind of a large variance there in terms of how big it can be. And so this is something that, you know, Dave Meltzer's talked about. I talked about, I've written about, I've I've put on my blog about. Brandon Howard did a great job of following up on this and going through and collecting all those KPI numbers. And, you know, if we just look at what those ranges are versus the reported numbers, you'll just be, you know, pretty surprised when you really see it. Uh, you know, in 2015, you had WWE coming out and saying, oh, we put about 77,000 people in Levi Stadium. I was there. It was a, it was a full place. But, you know, you had Dave Meltzer saying, well, no, no, the stadium was like 67,000 people were there. And 
what's funny is WWE had internal documentation, that lawsuit that got out, that had the schedule of everything, where it listed the capacity for Levi Stadium at 66,060 seats. So the fact that they would say 67,000 is about the right number sounds about right. If you just look at what the calculated value is based on their own KPIs, you know, it could be as low as 50,000, could be as high as 65,000. Um, but the difference there being, you know, even if it's 65, 66, 67,000, that's 10,000 people less than what WWE claimed. And the reason for that is that WWE thinks of these WrestleMania numbers as press releases, not different than saying we have the best product in the marketplace i am the best presidential presidential candidate out there i'm the smartest man alive that's hyperbole it's it's you're selling your product of course you're going to say you're the best you're the biggest you're the you're you you've got the the uh the most endowed uh uh abilities what the difference there being is that people take those wwe attendance numbers and treat them like the God's honest truth, and then are shocked and appalled when there's either an implication that they're untrue or that people think that we're calling WWE a liar. Well, if you look at WWE for their SEC filings, for their financial filings, they don't appear to be lying there. What they appear to be doing is only in the press releases do they really make these claims. And if you go through each of these years here, 2014, looking at maybe a claim of 75,000 versus 65,000 that were there. Uh, 2013, the claim of almost 81,000 versus the 72,000 that were there. Uh, 2012, 78,000 versus the 67,000 that were there. Uh, 2011 is 72,000 versus 62,000. 2010 is 72,000 versus 61,000. 2009 is 73,000 versus 62,000. And then 2008 is a perfect example of this. WWE issued a press release where I think they claimed something like 74,635 people. You can go to their website right now and look at it. However, they also issued a 10Q, fi 10Q filing where you can go and you can click on that. It's registered with the SEC. And it actually says verbatim in the 10Q filing for the second quarter of 2008. Our attendance at WrestleMania was 63,100 people paid. Now, yes, you could say, well, maybe they're just talking about the 11,000 freebies that we put in. Sure, maybe there's 11,000 freebies there. Maybe not, though. You know, the difference there is pretty consistently about 10 to 11,000, sometimes as low as 8, sometimes as much as 12,000 increase. But the difference there is it's always trying to match or beat some other record that's been established that WWE magically is able to do, even though they've got this giant stage. And I think that speaks a lot to just more that it's the PR nature of it. Um, and I wonder whether investors fully understand and, and, and comprehend exactly what's happened with those worked attendance numbers. I tell it to journalists and their eyes bug out. You know, I've actually found court filings where they've made reference to the 93,000 number from WrestleMania 3. And when I asked someone about it, they basically told me, well, as long as the person who wrote the brief thought that the information was true in the best of their knowledge, and they weren't around at the time it happened. Of course, 1987, you're not going to find a lot of WWE employees who are around from those days who are filing court papers on WWE's behalf. Um, though I guess McDivitt technically would probably date back to then, but it wasn't, I don't think, a McDivitt court paper. Um, it's not considered a, a false thing because they're not 
basically holding it up as a material fact. But anyways, it, it just kind of shocks me sometimes when I when I look at this and, and people are incredulous that somehow WWE could have lied about this, despite the fact that they're, they're workers and they lie. Uh, speaking of legal filings, WWE's had a lot of successes in the last uh, couple months here. Most of the CTE lawsuit thrown out, except for the people that basically after a certain point, you know, kind of uh, a portion of the Evan Singleton, Vita LaGrasso, uh, Russ McCullough lawsuit was allowed to to move forward. Um, a uh, pretty much complete win on the stock market case about the TV rights. Again, not a huge surprise in the sense that I was able to pretty much peg the right number for the TV rights using only the information that I was able to gather through freely available resources. And so to say that no one could figure that out, that it would come in at one and a half and not two X, three X, four X, five X, six X is unreasonable. Um, That said, you know, they did make some statements and some pretty strong language that, you know, really got into this whole debate about if you say something on a call that you know is not true versus that you think could still be true versus uh, was just bluster and pompousness. Uh, It really got into some really fine minutiae around uh, what exactly can executives say. And I do think we've seen WWE back off a little bit ever since then uh, about some of their their more wild claims. Uh, WWE, of course, has been wildly successful in consolidating all these cases, getting them all tried in Connecticut in front of the judges that they know, you know, Vanessa Bryant and Underhill or Underwood, whichever his name is, um, and, and these people. So they've done really well on that. The royalties lawsuit from Renee uh, Dupree didn't even last a week because uh, it sounds like he had already signed some agreements that kind of invalidated his standing as the lead plaintiff in a class action suit. So be curious if that ever comes back. Um, I'll be really curious to see if any of the concussion people go over to the royalties lawsuit. You know, as I pointed out, someone like Ryan Sakota would probably fit perfectly into the time frame of someone who would have had the sort of contract that would technically, according to at least the the class action video royalties um, portion of of their contract seem like it would work with the WWE Network, whether or not that's true, who knows. Um, The, you know, patent trolls seems like they've gotten rid of a lot of that. So WWE has been exceptionally successful about all these different lawsuits, including even like, you know, the wrongful death and things of that nature coming from the Viscera or the Bad Osborne family. So WWE uh, really doing incredible uh, spending all that money on their legal fees, but at least in the end, getting some pretty uh, 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 popular verdicts for them. And we're just seeing a little bit of a you know an appeal going on and a little bit of discovery and debate over depositions in the Singleton lawsuit right now, um, both with an early deposition of Evan Singleton coming out from the WWE side where they basically paint him as someone who doesn't even know why he's suing WWE for fraud and things like that. And we're also seeing a lot of arguments going over about whether they can depose Triple H twice, once as a company officer, once as, you know, an administrator of NXT and things of that nature, whether they can depose uh, Bill DeMont, uh, who was the head trainer at the time, but is no longer affiliated, whether or not they can depose Stephanie McMahon whatsoever. Uh, and so it's it's an interesting uh, uh, set of court filings for people to kind of tune in and, and check out. And uh, David Bixon's fan has been covering them closely in the Figure Four Weekly, which I do recommend people go, you know, subscribe and follow. You're not going to find this kind of coverage in a KPI, that's for sure. Uh, they won their, their Thailand lawsuit over the television rights 
uh, of of the 27 or 23 million dollars that weren't being paid to them that you know essentially they breached their contract they didn't pay their rights and so then they owed the full amount and and whether or not WWE collects a penny on that I don't know same thing happened with Solar in the Philippines years ago uh so this has happened before and I always think you know, WWE brags about all this new money they were supposed to be getting on their TV rights deals. Did they take out the Thailand piece of it when they start publishing the numbers going forward? Are they ever going to get it? So I'm really interested to see, does that show up as bad debt or where that goes? And if anyone ever actually asks them about, you know, is there anything else that's like that where you have a deal that you've told us about, but in the end, it, it doesn't look like it's uh, actually coming to fruition. Well, it's been about an hour of me rambling on about WWE Q1 results, emerging markets, a lot of things. You can might even hear my dog in the background rustling around the basement here. My name is Chris Harrington. You can reach me at chris.harrington at gmail.com. I want to thank all the people who have been reaching out to me recently. I've had some new uh, voices, some new new people giving me insights and thoughts on things. I wasn't able to cover the WWE Q1 call live, so I really appreciate everyone who kind of came through and, and gave me nice little rundowns of things, and I appreciated, you know, getting feedback and emails from, from Keith and from Brandon and from Dave and from other people, you know, saying telling me things that they saw. And uh, I, I always encourage people to follow me on Twitter at Mukigana. Um, you know, I enjoy talking about this stuff with people that are interested in this stuff and, you know, everybody's got their own little area here. I had a really fun exchange today with, uh, Ryan Satin who does, you know, pro wrestling sheet, uh, cause I really enjoyed, you know, he's someone who's looked at a lot of these lawsuit stuff. And so when we're talking about Kairos's, uh, Constantine's fate, you know, crazy lawsuit filings, he's, he's someone who's looked at them and thought about them before. So he's, he's a knowledgeable guy in that sense. And I, I, I respect that a lot. You know, anybody who's sitting there and taking the time to, to look and think and read these things and figure out, you know, where's the juicy bits? Um, cause they are out there and they're, they're interesting and they're fun to do. And, uh, I, I encourage everyone who's, you know, an amateur wrestlematrician to get out there and start looking at this stuff and figuring out where you can go. I, I said earlier in the show, you know, I was going to talk about Mexico uh, because it just occurred to me now that I never did. The one piece I wanted to say about Mexico at the time was that, you know, Mexico has shrunk from a marketplace that used to, you know, Latin America, Mexico uh, was generating a, a almost $20 million back in 2010. Then it was 19 in 2011. Then it was 10. Then it was six. And so it's a, it's it fell by almost 25% between 20. 10 and 2015 on a Kager on a, a compound annual growth rate. Uh, and so, you know, I encourage people, you know, when we say, why did they move away from Mexico? You know, I asked that question on Twitter today at Mukigana and people, uh, you know, were, were giving me their thoughts about, you know, was it related to Ray? Was it related to certain houses that were bought houses that didn't go so well then in the future? Was it about attendance? Was it about other competitive pressures? Now they have a new deal with Fox Sports Latin America you know, and that's everywhere from Mexico to Venezuela. So is that going to make a difference for them? So I'm, I'm really curious about that stuff. And uh, I, I work best when I can, you know, bounce ideas and, and discussions off other people. And, and I think uh, Brandon Howard's been someone, a decorative drop, who has done a wonderful job of not only picking up the mantle of doing some of this coverage and, and discussions and, and deep dive into some things that I just haven't had the time, energy, or know-with-all to get at, but also coordinating and collaborating with me on stuff and being someone that's, you know, it's fun to help me 
document and, and save all this stuff and figure things out. And, you know, in the future, I hope to have more collaborations with people. You know, I've talked to uh, my good friend, uh, Mr. Parker, about, you know, can we go to the Chicago Cook uh, County Courthouse and get a look at those Colt Cabana documents? Uh, and can we find out what's happening in that punk Dr. Oman lawsuit? So uh, Dr. Oman also, I believe, being disposed, uh, deposed for uh, the concussion lawsuit. But we will find this and that there and then, whenever it might be. You can always find me over at VoicesOfWrestling.com as uh, audio podcast. You can find me at WrestleNomics.com. We'll take you to my blog where I regularly put things up. Uh, IndeedWrestling.com will take you to more of my statistics site. I got a new computer, so I'm starting to work on some more statistics stuff. And I, I you know, I have projects always in my back pocket that I'm interested in doing. I want to look at, you know, the WCW payroll in, in light of Rybackonomics. You know, does it make sense about do we pay people to lose or not lose? I think Dennis Rodman might be like the highest paid uh, jobber that WCW ever hired, if you really think about it. But, uh, or Kevin Green, one of the two. Um, but, Stuff like that, always fun for me. It's always interesting, you know, to kind of get more perspectives. And I appreciate when people reach out with their thoughts and comments. And uh, I always enjoy, you know, listening to good podcasts and good discussions. I'm uh, a big fan of Sheet Sandwich. I'm a big fan, of course, of Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez. I'm a big fan of uh, MLW these days. But I can always expand and do a little bit more than just that. Those podcasts and how did this get made? So uh, that and Planet Money pretty much is my entire downcast queue these days. So always looking for suggestions on on better ways for me to spend my time. If you're someone who's been reading articles and seeing things about you know the future of media, what's going to happen in 2019 when you know all these live sports deals are coming up, and uh, what is the nature of cord cutting and the nature of of television demographics? If you find good articles on that, if you see good court cases about that, if you find good talking points on that, I'm always interested on in that perspective. So please hit me up at Mukigana. That's it for now. Have a great night, everybody. Bye bye. In a world of one million wrestling podcasts, there is a new shining star with great interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Coon, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.